Hello and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London and my productivity times have been turned upside down due to the Rugby World Cup. This is a lesson in time management. If you want to get tasks done, you need to complete them around your engagements. Your tasks might include practicing, listening to repertoire you're playing coming up, invoicing, booking trains and accommodation, writing links to a podcast you set up. And the engagements you have to work around might include gigs, lessons, appointments, or even social commitments. If you have a fun thing around which you need to complete all your tasks, it's usually at the end of the day. You can pat yourself on the back, you got everything done, now for some time with your friends and family. What do you do, though, if your fun engagement is at the beginning of the day? Last weekend, New Zealand played South Africa in Japan, kicking off at 10.45 in the morning. My day went like this. Woke up, did some editing and emails. Productive already, off to a very good start. Had a shower, put on some black clothes. Now it sounds like I was getting ready to go to a gig. But no, I went to the pub dressed in my country's colours. Got to said pub, realised the entire place was empty because I was wanting to watch an All Blacks game in England and also because it was 10.30 in the morning. The upside was that I had the whole place to myself. The downside was the immense struggle following the match to get myself back into work mode after being in leisure mode. It definitely feels like a one-way street when you go in that direction. It's like working in the wrong time zone. My solution? The same thing that solves jet lag, a hangover, or a bad mood. Coffee. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Caffeine. Speaking of the rugby, what do rugby and opera have in common? My guest this episode is a fan of both. No, she's not Welsh. She's Kiwi. She's the first Kiwi I've had on the podcast, apart from myself, obviously. Her name is Lucy Anderson, and she's the assistant company manager of English National Opera, based in the London Coliseum. Lucy and I go way back. I met her in New Zealand National Youth Orchestra, where she was a flute player back in 2007. Since then, her journey has taken her to Australia, Germany, and now London, switching performance for orchestral and company management. What does an opera company manager actually do? Everything, it turns out. Have a listen to my chat with Lucy. I actually have something for you. I thought because... Congratulations, you are my first Kiwi <laughs> guest. I've, amazing. I brought us some pineapple lumps oh for the occasion. Oh my God, you're amazing. <laughs> for listeners who don't know pineapple lumps, Lucy, would you care to explain what pineapple lumps actually are? I mean, basically it's just all goodness in the form of a sweet. It's pineapple surrounded by chocolate. Pineapple marshmallow. Oh, sorry, pineapple say. marshmallow, yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, dig in. I, I thought that'd be quite a good podcast food because they're fairly silent. Mm-hmm. If it were up to me, I'd probably just eat crisps all the time. Not good for podcasting. No, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm sorry for talking with my mouth full. Oh, I apologise too, but actually I'm not really sorry. Mm-mm. Tastes so good. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> this is also an amazing coffee that we're mm. having. Do you miss good coffee living here in the UK? Mm, I do miss good coffee. I think the UK is getting better for coffee, especially in London. Mm-hmm. 
there are a number of excellent cafes around. You just have to know where to go mm-hmm. to get a very good flat white. It's not quite like New Zealand where even at the smallest petrol station in the middle of nowhere, it will still be an amazing flat white. Expensive mm. though. Last time I went back, flat mm. white, $5. Oh, mm. yep. typical. Mind you, you pay for quality, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Do you do that thing where you go into a cafe in the UK and you listen for the accent behind the coffee machine? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And if it's a Kiwi, you know it's a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kiwi or Aussie. Or Aussie, yeah. yeah. No, we've got to give them that. Or just those people who know about Aussie and Kiwi coffee. When you've got a barista like that, you, yep. you know that you're in safe hands. <laughs> they have quite a few Kiwis or Aussies already in there, so that's a good sign mm. of a good cafe as well. Very good sign. Mm. So, as I mentioned before, you're my first Kiwi guest that I've interviewed. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are currently in a small front of house room at the London Coliseum, which is the home of the English National Opera. It's a very um, ornate room decorated with architraves and freezers and uh, the walls are embossed with lots of decorations. Mm. I feel very lucky to be here. You're more than welcome to be in here any time you like. (laughs) I've got to say the building is far more decorative and beautiful front of house than it is back of house. (laughs) But I think that's true for most theatres around the place. That's true. Mm. How old is this building? It was built and opened in 1904. It's a Frank Matcham theatre, so he designed and built a lot of the famous theatres around the UK. But um, we are actually the biggest. Oh, well done. I I think in terms of capacity anyway, so we're the biggest theatre in the West End. How many people? 2,400, I think. It's quite a lot of people. It is quite a lot of people, especially when you think that's the number of people in the audience and then actually the number of people backstage as well (gasps) is also rather significant. Mm -hmm. Obviously not 2,500, but still it's a busy, busy place on a... On a performance night. Yeah, so Mm. if you ever are in that situation where you need to evacuate the building, that's a lot of people (laughs) to account for. It really is, funnily enough. Has that ever happened to you? It has happened to me twice in the last few months, I think, (laughs) after not having any evacuations in the Coliseum for years and years. Yeah, it happened to me twice on the same show in the space of two weeks. So at least by the second one, I was quite well practiced at what to do (laughs) in that instance. What happened? So the first one, there was a power cut in Leicester Square. Someone had cut through a cable, we think, but we're not sure. And obviously a big blackout when you're in the middle of a theatre. The emergency lighting came on straight away. But you've got to evacuate the building because that's running off a generator and you've got a couple of thousand people in the building who need to get out. I think the first one that we did... It was at the half, so half an hour before the show began. So the audience, there were only a few audience members in. We hadn't yet opened the house. And so the audience were in the bars. And then that's front of house's job to clear them out. That's fine. We were on stage just having finished the warm-ups. And then we just evacuated everybody. It was rather funny. We had um, Kelsey Grammer was in. We were doing Man of La Mancha. And I sort of had this moment of walking out with him thinking, oh, our evacuation spot we can't have him with the, all the audience evacuated who have come to see him. So sort of walking down an alleyway with him in full costume to try and get him into a bar out of the way wow. from everybody else. Yeah, Sort of being his bodyguard a little bit. Yeah, yeah, very much so. There were a few cameras and things like that. Yeah. Oh, my God. You just sort of think, oh, 
how did how did I get into this situation? Yeah, I bet. Mm. So I was just reflecting how I know you, and I think I've known you for about twelve years from New Zealand. And I bet twelve mm. years ago you probably didn't think you'd be escorting Kelsey Grammer down a dark alleyway in the West End on the other side of the world. <laughs> I mean, we know each other from New Zealand. We we're both members of National Aww. Youth Orchestra. Good memories. Good times. <laughs> Hazy memories. Mm. National Youth Orchestra. What do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of musicians away on tour when they're quite young. Yeah, yeah. we. We were quite young, weren't we? Mm. We didn't feel like we were, but we mm. were. You remind me of myself and a lot of Kiwis in the sense that we tend to be quite nomadic because we've lived in several different places in our shortish lifetimes. <laughs> I like the shortish. <laughs> but also taking each day as it comes, mm, so to speak. So. You also lived in Australia. I lived in Sydney and you lived in Canberra. The bra. Because I kind of forgot that you lived in Canberra actually I was reflecting on on that time about Mm. 10 years ago and we I saw you all the time in Sydney because you're always like a three-hour bus ride away and then I remembered oh but you didn't actually live here (laughs) yeah I I lived there for a few months about five months after I'd lived in Canberra like you say I did go up to Sydney quite a few times mainly to be completely honest there wasn't very much going on in Canberra and I was trying to work (laughs) out what does everybody do here on the weekends and it turns out it was, in fact, going to Sydney. Yeah, they leave town, don't they? They leave town, yeah. yeah. Very much a government and university town. It's a funny place, isn't it? It's. Uh, I'll be very nice to Canberra because I'm pretty sure that we have listeners from Canberra. <laughs> Canberrans. Canberrans. I've got a great um, big soft spot for them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a planned city, mm. isn't it? So it is. Everything's very symmetrical. Mm-hmm. Lots Everything. of roundabouts. Mm-hmm. And roundabouts inside roundabouts. And also I think it was a city that they planned for it to be a little bit bigger than what it ended up being. So the distances in between places are quite vast with nothing in between. (laughs) A bit of a desert. I think it was the first place I'd moved from New Zealand. And I thought, I think one of my first weekends there, I did go up to Sydney to meet a friend of mine. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm in a new country. I should see everything that I can possibly see. I was on a a. 6am bus and I was determined to stay awake to see the scenery because <laughs> if you're traveling through New Zealand and you're driving for three hours the scenery mm. can be quite spectacular totally driving from Canberra to Sydney <laughs> was not quite so I really struggled to keep my eyes open and it turned out that there was nothing to see on either side for the duration of the three hours until we reached Sydney airport <laughs> it's like being on Mars isn't it everything is uh, red yeah and flat and rocky and no trees no trees yeah. And nothing. We're so lucky coming from New Zealand, aren't oh, we? I know. Well, that's sort of like the danger when you do go back there and you're driving around and then you have to be careful not to drive off the road because yeah. you'll turn the corner and there will be this incredible vista of mountains and Exactly. I think lakes. we take it for granted and we appreciate it when you go away. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, it took me moving all the way to the other side of the world and to go back on holiday to finally visit the South Island. <laughs> So yeah, good times in Australia. And then following that, you left me. I did. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It wasn't personal. Your journey took you to Germany. Can you tell us in a bit more detail as to how you ended up in Frankfurt of Mm. all places? So there was a teacher in Frankfurt who I knew through another flute playing friend of mine. Um, He had some great students and was a great, great player. She sort of contacted him on my behalf. He said, look, I'd love to have you in my studio. That would be great. And actually at the same time, we're looking for an au pair for our five-year-old English and German-speaking daughter. So they needed an English-speaking person, basically, to help out their daughter because they wanted her to be bilingual. She's probably now tri-lingual. So I went and studied with my teacher. I lived in their house in a beautiful apartment in Frankfurt. 
eating amazing food, drinking amazing wine. I didn't have the normal <laughs> student lifestyle, I must admit. I was very, very lucky. And I had a live-in teacher. Wow. Which had its um, pros and its cons, I think. I couldn't, listen, I couldn't practice in the house without an extra pair of ears, which... Sometimes you want, and other times you just want to do some bad practice, you know. Yeah, just mm. get that stuff out of your system. Exactly, just, you know, the days you're not really feeling it. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you moved to Berlin. Berlin, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think Frankfurt was never going to be my city. It was a great, great city to be a student in because, again, like Canberra, there wasn't much going on. <laughs> I yeah. think the only part of Frankfurt I've been to is the airport, mm. and even that's not very impressive. Exactly, yeah. It was. I mean, it's very much a financial centre, so... Unlike other European cities, it's got lots of skyscrapers. It was completely destroyed in the Second World War. So mm. everything's quite a new build and not necessarily the prettiest city. It's not when you're in New Zealand and you think, oh, beautiful old European cities. Frankfurt, <laughs> not that. But again, I've got a soft spot for it. How did you fare with the culture shock of moving all the way from the Antipodes to Germany? Moving to Germany... I think, one, now I look back and I think, God, how did I do that when I was so young? I must have been 22, Mm. which now, looking back, feels like it was quite young. At the time, it was probably the right age to do it because you've got no fears. I think on the outside, it's a Western country. Everything's quite similar. And then it's not like going somewhere like China or India and getting culture shock where it's so obvious. It sort of took a little bit more scratching the surface to realise the differences between German and New Zealand culture. And I think they are two quite stark ends of a spectrum New Zealand's quite relaxed laid back Germany's not sure New Zealand you sort of have a a relaxed time zone Germany if you're arriving on time you're already late (laughs) that's good training for being a classical musician though I mean yeah definitely because that's what they always say if you're turning up to a rehearsal you've got to get there before the rehearsal starts Mm -hmm. if you're if you're on time you're already late as you say yeah how did you fare learning the language well, I spoke about four words of German when I moved there, and I thought I was basically fluent. Yeah. Doing really well. Yeah, it was one of those things everybody said to me again before you leave, oh, living, living in Germany, you'll learn the language like that. And you do learn the language, but you do have to put in some hard work. I think I had to do a language course as part of my studies in the Hochschule as one of the requirements. But it was one of those things you, I never really had to practice because... You go to a class, you learn some words, and then they're actually all around you. Mm. I think in Germany you're very lucky as well because everybody speaks amazing English. But then that also makes it harder to learn because they see that German's not your first language and then they'll help you out by speaking English. So yep. I really had to persevere and actually respond again in German. Yeah, And it's one of those things. You learn to understand a lot more, far more, before you can say it. I remember yes, yeah. one of my friends saying to me, she's like, oh, you've learned German so quickly. It's because you... You can't not be in a conversation, can you? <laughs> Always got to put your two cents. I know. Yeah. I think I found it really frustrating to sort of sit at a dinner table and it gave me a whole new level of understanding for people who'd moved to New Zealand or to other countries who were doctors and then driving a taxi. They've still got that same level of intellect and that same knowledge and experience. They just don't have the vocabulary with which to express it and therefore people judge them on what they can say. So I used to sit at dinner parties and think oh, I've got an opinion, I just can't say it. (laughs) That must be really annoying. But then I guess you learn so much from observing. I guess that can be said in the the music world as well, learning from your peers, learning from those around you, and then sort of assimilating that knowledge before you can kind of express it yourself. One thing, I remember sitting in orchestral rehearsals when I'd been in Germany for a month, and 
it made me so aware of how much a conductor says, not with his words, not with his voice, with his language, but actually what he's saying and what he wants is through the expression on his face, through his gestures. Mm. Also, how many words were Italian, piano, forte, all of of this. You you sort of realise we have an international language. Language and music is universal. There we go. (laughs) How could we get any more cliched? (laughs) But it was sort of, it was only the bar numbers that I found really hard to keep up with. no, yeah. So they'd be like, oh, 141. And by the time I'd say, I'd worked out <laughs> 101 and 40, they were already at 150. Oh my gosh, yes, because that's the thing about German numbers, the second number comes first, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah, I find that difficult. If I go to Stuttgart and I'm listing out for the train numbers. Oh yes. Yep. Yeah, and I'm just like, why is it 2 and 40, not 42? I, th- there is no reason. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure there is. It's Germany. Oh yeah. yeah, there must be a reason. And at least it's consistent because I imagine people learning English would have a far worse time. Exactly. There are so they? many times that I'm so grateful that English was my first language, <laughs> even if I do speak it with a very thick New Zealand accent. Your accent is lovely. It's music to my ears right now. Thanks. <laughs> we'll get fresh ears. One of my German teachers said to me once, she was like, oh, Lucy, you've learned so much German so quickly and none of it from me. Where have you learned it? And I, I was too embarrassed to tell her the kniper, which was the pub. <laughs> it means you're socialising with locals. Mm-hmm. And my friends, and therefore, yeah, you lose your, a little bit of your inhibitions. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's the best way to learn, really, mm. isn't it, is mm. the practical side of things. What, being drunk? What? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we've all learned a lot in that way. But <laughs> <laughs> Many a lesson, many a time. I mean, the practical side of things is just learning to do things by doing it. Exactly. And like in the music world as well, there's, there's only so much that you can learn from a theory book or from reading Very much so. Reading yeah. about your, your craft. But in the, at the end of the day, you have to just get in there and do it, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> and learn the rap and know the rap and listen to the rap and play the rap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's one thing I actually realised in Germany that I was so fortunate to have come from quite a small country because you did get that practical experience in mm. New Zealand. By the time I'd moved to Germany, I'd already played with Wellington Symphonia, New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. I was in the Royal New Zealand Air Force Band. So by the time I got to Germany, I'd had a lot of practical experience Mm. playing in orchestras, which meant that I therefore got a lot more experience. They were more willing to take me on. Mm -hmm. I think within my first few months of being in Germany, I was already playing with Hesse Rundfunk. The, basically the Frankfurt version of the BBC because even though I studied with a lot of flautists who were amazing, they hadn't had that exposure to playing in professional orchestras. Yeah, I imagine that's hard coming from this side of the world. I notice this people in the UK and mm. they've never played certain staples we would consider like mm. a, a Brahms symphony or a Beethoven symphony because there's so much competition for those spots and you hear about people that study in colleges here in the UK and they had to audition to get into their college orchestra and I just think well there were only six in my year <laughs> like, like we, we, we had no choice we just all had to do it it was a really. requirement yeah exactly and it's like if we didn't show up well that was like a significant fraction of the section that wasn't there exactly. yeah <laughs> so I think we were really really lucky yeah mm. I felt the same actually coming over and it's like oh yeah, no, I've played this piece before. People mm. being like, why, you know? Exactly. I think one thing we did miss out on, though, is and that I realised when I got to Frankfurt, we don't have the exposure to all the big international orchestras. I think by the time I'd moved to Australia, I'd only ever heard the New Zealand Symphony and the Auckland Philharmonic play live, oh, and Wellington Symphonia. Auckland Philharmonia. Sorry, yes. <laughs> Says the Aucklander. 
I have to. Yeah. That's my old orchestra. But then going to Frankfurt and just down the road, five minutes walk away from my house in the Alta Oper, the Alice Oward come, Berliner Philharmonica, so many amazing orchestras all just down the road and all so cheap. And I just couldn't believe the access that I got just to sit there and watch amazing programs played by amazing orchestras with amazing conductors. Yeah, such a variety as well. Exactly. You sort of learn your ear becomes quite different mm-hmm. when you train your ear quite well and realise that actually you can't judge an orchestra just on the orchestra. It's not until you've seen them with a variety of conductors mm. that you really realise their capabilities. And same conductors, you can't judge them on just one one programme. You have to see them perform a variety of programmes with different orchestras, see their true value and what they're really capable of. Seeing kind of that relationship flow between mm. conductor and orchestra, exactly. it's not just as straightforward as we think. Oh, oh no. <laughs> well, as straightforward as we'd like it to be. <laughs> Particularly now working in management side of things, it's quite different as well. Yeah. Mm. So tell us about how you got into the management side of orchestral playing. Mm. So coming from a performing point of view, as I mentioned earlier, you you moved from Frankfurt to Berlin. Tell us a little bit about what led you there. So when I was in Frankfurt freelancing and studying and then I knew that I'd always wanted to live in Berlin, I started playing with a lot of orchestras up there as well. One of them was called Ensemble Mini. Ensemble Mini was an orchestra originally created by the members of the Carrion Academy from the Berlin Philharmonica, and they had decided they wanted to sort of continue playing together and created this orchestra. So Ensemble Mini, sort of in the name, but it's a very small orchestra, (laughs) except instead of being a chamber orchestra, they actually do big works, but in what we called Kleine Besetzung, which means sort of small arrangements. So we would do a Mahler symphony, but for 16 players. So wow. single single strings, single winds, and an accordion, which helped fill out the part. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's, there's your harmony. Exactly. Filler. Yeah. A bit more depth to the sound. Who was responsible for arranging those? <laughs> so some people were commissioned to do the arrangements. Okay. Um, the music director had done a couple as well. It was an amazing experience. I mean, one playing with them, we played in the Bill and Philharmonie when I was there, which mm. was great. And then... I sort of took on their management as well because I decided this was something I quite enjoyed doing. And what I liked about the orchestra is that because it's mini, you can go into venues that wouldn't normally be home to classical music. It doesn't have to be in a concert hall. Mm -hmm. And I liked the idea of sort of making concerts accessible. So we'd do these big works, except we would do them, the concert may have only been an hour long. Mm. Our home for my duration in the management was an abandoned swimming pool in East Berlin. <laughs> Classy. That's classic, <laughs> typical Berlin. Remnants of the DDR. <laughs> I mean, yeah, very much so. It was great. So the swimming pool, the owners had actually turned it into a nightclub as well because who doesn't want to go clubbing underneath an abandoned swimming pool amongst all the water pipes? It was, <laughs> I mean, bizarre, but actually amazing at the same time. So my office was up in where I assume the lifeguard had been looking over the pool. The orchestra would perform in the pool. I will clarify it had been emptied of all water <laughs> for quite some time. So the orchestra would perform in the pool and the audience would be set on the bleachers around the outside. Wow, so you could see sort of in and over. In and over. And the acoustics were surprisingly great. <laughs> Somewhat like being in a big bathroom, I Indeed. believe. Indeed, <laughs> but funnily enough, not too much. Well, if you've got people in there, that mm. sort of absorbs some of the reverberations as well, right? Exactly. I think we had an idea at one point of having one of the soloists up on one of the diving boards at the other end, but (laughs) for safety reasons, we decided to go against that. 
I think my favourite morning of working for them, though, was when I think I had to be there at six o'clock in the morning so that the six Russian piano movers could be supervised while carrying down a grand piano down the swimming pool ladder into the swimming pool. Wow. Mm. So the things you do. Yeah. I bet that's something that you wouldn't have thought you would do 10 years before that. No, not at all. I mean, still now, if someone told me to do that, I think I'd look at them twice. How do you deal with the slopes in a swimming pool? Because you had the shallow end and the deep end. Yeah, so we'd perform in the shallow end, <laughs> and then there was quite a steep incline to the mm. deep end. We didn't perform in the deep end, okay. I think. We may have stored some percussion equipment down there. It was pretty pretty safe and sound. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing is, the, this is quite common in the UK, but you have these really old theatres with kind of rickety floorboards etc and they're all being used um, Mm -hmm. which is brilliant but they were perhaps built in an era where foundations were maybe not as strictly conforming to requirements as they are now. The number of times I have finished performing with like terrible back pain because I realise oh the stage is sloping forward. (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to hold my cello the whole time. (laughs) Yeah exactly I was just I'm sitting like really really wonkily and Mm -hmm. so painful Mm -hmm. but I'm glad you didn't have that problem in the swimming pool no I mean it was a very flat fall maybe a little bit slippery performing there in the middle of a Berlin winter with not the best heating in the world yeah yeah there were there were trials and tribulations but you You get through them you do yeah and the players were amazing and so committed and I mean such incredible musicians to play such pieces and they all loved coming together and there was always a club night afterwards where in the same in, pool? In the same, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it was a good time. What led you to pursue orchestral management and working on that side mm. of the orchestra? I realised that playing and managing the same orchestra at the same time is probably a little bit too much to take on all in once. But I don't know, I enjoyed the management of it. It was quite fun. It was great. I liked knowing all the ins and outs and mm. being involved in what we could do next and how we can achieve this and having crazy ideas and how do we put these into practice. Yeah. Especially for something like Ensemble Mini when it was, you could sort of go a bit out on edge and our goal was to take music to people who wouldn't normally go to concerts. Yeah. And I really enjoy that side of things. I really enjoy the breaking down the barriers, making sure that actually people realise that classical music is for everybody. It's not an elitist thing. I think in New Zealand I grew up thinking it was very much... Well, audiences are certainly not as diverse as they could be. Exactly. Uh, You go along and you you see the same people in the same seats, the same subscribers week after week. Yeah. And then how do you break into that if you've not grown grown up with that? Yeah. Or Or, how do you build the next generation of audience goers? mm -hmm. Exactly. Or if you don't see people like yourself doing the same sort of thing. If you think that you need to have a special knowledge to be moved by the music or to understand the music or to belong there, then, yeah, I disagree with that. I think everybody needs to know that it is for them and actually everybody can be moved by an experience. And you don't necessarily need to articulate how something makes you feel. I think that's the problem is, I've spoken about this many times, I'm sure, but, you know, you do get the odd audience goer who has to, like, give a full-on in-depth analysis into what they've just heard. And it's like... Is this for my benefit or is this just for you? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's like if if you liked a piece and you don't really know why, then that's fine and you don't need to talk about it. Likewise, if you didn't like a piece and you didn't like it, that's also fine. Exactly. You know, music is going to touch people differently. Mm. And I think that's what I really like now working at English National Opera because they the motto of E&O is opera for, the, for everyone. And there are a number of new schemes that are trying to get young people in to the opera and sort of 
creating accessible programs and shows and everything so that people actually just get exposed to it in the first place. Mm-hmm. We've got a under-18 scheme where it's free tickets for anybody under the age of 18. Free? Free, which is amazing. That's incredible because, I mean, I remember when, like, in New Zealand, I remember getting $10 rush tickets. Exactly. That's, that's pretty good, but free. But free. And it's just the natural response you get from kids that, you know, sort of when people are a bit more grown up, they think, oh, I can't clap until other people are clapping. That raw response of... <laughs> I mean, even cheering when someone takes their shirt off on the stage, it's, <laughs> it gives us all a good laugh. Right, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's the thing with kids is, is the way that they respond to things, as you say, is very raw, very mm. kind of organic. And it, it reminds us of the delight that we actually get exactly. from, from witnessing live music. And it's watching other people sort of react to that as well and realising that they can cheer as well. It's quite <laughs> nice. Obviously, you didn't stay in Germany, but it sounds like you were armed with quite a new skill set to mm. come to London. What brought you to London? I think just life, really. I knew that I didn't want to stay in Germany. A lot of my friends were in London. And I thought, well, the best time to move there would be when all my friends are there from home, who I hadn't lived with for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. So I came over to London, just literally sort of packed my bags, went home to New Zealand, applied for a visa, and then got on a plane as soon as I had it. <laughs> That's such a Kiwi thing to do, isn't it? I mean, I mean I'm mean, i the same. Mm. That's why I think you remind me of me. It's just mm. that feeling of, oh, yeah, I'll just get on a plane and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then here we are just doing random stuff, <laughs> making exactly. a podcast, for yeah. example. But it's that kind of Kiwi attitude that there is stuff out there. Yeah. Isn't there? I mean, I think I was always really lucky to have great friends as well, so I knew coming to London especially that when I got here I could crash on someone's couch Mm -hmm. and there would be people to help me out and you're away from your family but you've got people in the know and yeah which in Germany originally I didn't have anyway so yeah it was sort of nice and it was also nice to come somewhere that was English speaking (laughs) something a little bit more aligned to my culture back home a bit more banter that was lacking in Germany I think when I moved to London like a week before I moved to London I didn't even have a place to stay exactly but I just thought I'll be fine I'll yeah. see what happens. She'll be right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and luckily, I did have a place to stay and subsequently stayed for another six and a half years. Exactly. But it's just that attitude that things will be fine if you you prepare for the worst, but mm. quite often the worst doesn't happen. Exactly. And I think also that arrogance of youth in a way. <laughs> You're not worried about what will happen because you've got no idea what will happen. I know. Well, I just wonder, would I have that now? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would. I don't know. I've got I can't to. imagine moving to a country now where I didn't speak the language and knew nobody yeah. and just taking one suitcase and being fine with it. Oh, gosh, I've got so many possessions just sprawled throughout the world. I Sometimes I think, oh, gosh, where's my piano part to the Schumann cello concerto? Oh, I think it's in my dad's place in Melbourne. <laughs> no, I'm the same. I think I still got a cupboard storage in Canberra <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago. I think I'm going to kiss goodbye to that. Yep. And here you are. You are now assistant company manager. English National Opera. I am. Bizarre. Bizarre. Very bizarre. I don't really know but, how I got here, but yeah. But then it's kind of one of those things where you end up in an incredible job and I imagine you look back on your path and you look back to certain things that did happen, like for example, moving to Germany, managing Ensemble Mini, that just add to your skill set, which yeah. enable you to take on a job like this. And then you think, oh yeah, I guess it does make sense. Yeah, totally. Also, when you're studying music or being a freelance musician, you kind of develop natural organisation skills yourself anyway. And all that sort of management of time and rehearsals and yeah, so you learn a lot of skills that aren't necessarily on paper, but you do develop quite good life skills. Yeah. Mm. Logistics. Logistics. So many people 
myself included, <laughs> won't know exactly what your day-to-day life consists of as assistant company manager of mm-hmm. ENO. So can you enlighten us a little bit about that? It's one of those things that everybody always says, so what do you do? I don't know. <laughs> I'm busy all the time, but I couldn't tell you what I actually did. It's one of those things that there could be anything in a day. It's quite unpredictable. There are definitely no two days that are the same. Basically, I have to manage all the singers and deal with all the directors and music staff, conductors, and also all of our staff as well. So across the company, mm-hmm. making sure that all the productions run successfully, really. Is that sort of making sure people are in the right place at the right time? There is always a lot of that, I think, in any form of music <laughs> management. And it's just making sure that people are okay, doing a lot of scheduling and balancing a lot of shows at one time so we tend to have I think we've got five shows rehearsing or we start rehearsals next week and then five shows up until Christmas and then another five shows after Christmas so when you think of the logistics of having all those shows in rehearsal or various states of rehearsing in a studio rehearsing on stage performing on stage it's quite involved really and sometimes those singers cross over we've obviously got the chorus and the orchestra who are full-time as well Mm -hmm. so making sure that Everything is what it needs to be. It's sort of one thing when we're working on revivals, so those are shows we've done before, and we know how they go. But then there's doing new productions, so we always have quite a few of those in each season, and those are kind of the unknown, where you can prepare as much in advance as you like, but then some director might come to you and say, actually, we want a fire breather in this scene, and then facilitating those sort of requests can always be right. interesting. Look, look up the yellow pages, fire think, breather. Exactly. I think one, one show we used Bozo the Clown. He was great as, fire breather, as training our fire breathing. What show was that for? That would have been Chess, the musical last oh, year. Oh, Chess. 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 When we did do chess, I did ring up the music library and ask for the timings on chess. And they were like, for what? (laughs) Chess. What? (laughs) The big musical that we're currently doing? Oh. The next thing I knew, a poster had appeared in my office for chess, the musical spelled (laughs) C-H-I-S-S. You do have to love the the banter that gets you through. Yeah, that's true. Especially being Kiwi, I've learned to cope with Mm -hmm. a lot of that. And um, managing your vowels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've decided to just embrace them and be Kiwi as. Yeah, we'll have another pineapple lump. So I imagine your job consists of a lot of stepping in other people's shoes. You've got to Mm. see what the production's like from everyone's perspective, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, my main concern is always the singers. They are who we look after in my department and kind of trying to preempt what issues they might have dealing with a lot of different personalities in terms of that. Also just making sure that they're, you know, not overworked because for them it's their voice and that's everything. And if they sort of get sick and tired, mm-hmm. then that voice goes. And then the instrument's all, gone, yeah. The instrument is gone. Yeah. Have you got any good singer stories you can share with us? I mean, there's always the day that you get the phone call where someone calls in sick and then you have to make the dreaded phone call to the cover to let them know that actually they'll be going on tonight. Oh, jeez. And then all the... All the um, sort of organisation that that involves and dealing with costumes and front of house and getting the word out to the public, making sure that the cover has got enough time on stage. Quite often, though, we'll be changing over a set in between whatever has happened in the morning and the show before or before the show in the evening. So just trying to facilitate everything possible to help that singer out, Yeah, especially as a cover when they're going on to perform a show that they've only done in cover rehearsals with a different cast and that now they have to <laughs> sing it in front of two and a half thousand people. Yeah, no pressure. Mm. That must be so hard. I mean, like, 
speaking from my experience, I'm well, just this coming Saturday, I'm actually dipping in a show that I've never done before and mm-hmm. I've sat in on like a couple of rehearsals and it's fine. At least I've had like a couple of weeks to look at the part and I'm in the pit and I'm with a whole bunch of other musicians. But I couldn't imagine like, I mean, I guess there are some instrumentalists that do that kind of thing and they're like, oh, by the way, you're going to be on stage and perform this concerto okay. right now. I think... As a flautist, I'd actually done that myself, jump in in an orchestra. I think I had to go in at half time one day to play Mahler 5 in a massive concert hall with Pavo Yavi conducting. Oh, wow. First time I'd met him was sort of on stage about to play a piccolo <laughs> solo and thinking, holy crap, what am I doing? <laughs> so I think I get where the singer is coming from when they're doing that. But on a whole nother level, and where I've got so much respect for them for, is that not only do they have to have the music and the words, they also have to have all the direction and all the movement and what exit they're using to come off and on, what piece of costume they need, what props do they need. It's so much more involved than just me sitting there reading a piccolo part. Sure, yeah. Sight reading with the music, which from a singer's perspective is probably cheating. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like you get the music. That's not Mm. fair. Yeah, it's a whole other world, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we've got a great team here and every time something like that happens... There's so much support. Our stage management are fantastic. Our wardrobe staff are great. And it's kind of nice when you're working like that and everybody, like the clogs all start to kick in and everybody, yeah, everybody does it. Well, it's like a, a working machine, isn't it? Very much so. Mm. What's your favourite opera you've worked on? To have worked on? It would have been Akhenaten. <gasps> I came to see that. You did. You got me a ticket. I Thanks. Did. I think I came the, the day after Lady Gaga came. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get a few celebs in when we've got shows like that. Akhenaten was one of the first operas I worked on when I was assistant orchestra manager here. And I remember seeing what was coming up in the shows and I thought, was thinking, what show would I bring my friends into, especially my non-musical friends? Mm-hmm. And in a million years, I would never have said a Philip Glass opera. And then the show came and it was phenomenal. It was, I mean, the design was beautiful. It's I mean, for people who don't know, Philip Glass is a minimalist composer, so the music is very repetitive which floats some people's boats and not others. Mm -hmm. But just the whole show was stunning. The design, everything was done in slow motion, but with a team of professional jugglers all juggling in time to the music. So I think that was one of the first ones that really captured my imagination. To be honest, I hadn't really liked opera before I started working at ENO. I'd always preferred to play in symphonies and go to symphony concerts. But in terms of working backstage, I love working in an opera company because it is so involved like that. There are so many levels of artistry and so many different people doing so many different jobs just to make one show happen and hopefully on time. Only when you go behind the scenes and you really think about it all and you see how we've got a whole team of wig makers who are, (laughs) they've been to a hair merchant, they've got the designs, they are threading every single wig Mm -hmm. here in themselves and then you've got the costume department where they've made all the costumes themselves and cre- I mean we've got design teams who come in and create these amazing shows and then yeah. it's the people who make them happen there's someone responsible for everything yeah that you see yeah because when you sort of think about it it's a really big organization I mean it's sort of at times during the season it runs 24 7 because we'll perform one show in the evening and then the crew come in at the end of that show they will change over the set so that one show is gone and all storing or hanging up You'll be amazed how many pieces of set we can hang backstage while another show is being on. Then the next morning we'll have a stage rehearsal for another show. The afternoon they'll turn over again and we will have another show the next evening. So it's quite amazing and the sort of the cogs and logistics of making that work was quite eye-opening when I got here and realised on how many levels mm. an opera house actually operates. It's nice to come into a company and see so many different levels of creativity and artistry 
and all these crafts. I mean, we have a full-time milliner who makes all the hats. Is that what a milliner is? Yeah. A hat person. A hat person. Wow. I mean, she's phenomenal. And when you you think, well, yeah, actually, someone does have to make those. And they all have to fit on individual people's heads. And they have to be designed Mm. so that people can be on a set and sing in them and move around in them. I think what I like about it the most is coming in and seeing so many levels of artistry and creativity and people who are so good at their craft. Mm. And when I sort of realized that the guy on the follow spot cares just as much about hitting his mark and he is so precise in what he has to do and he cares just as much as the person playing the principal oboe and crafting every single note so perfectly in her solo so I think I like how it all fits together and actually there an opera is so many levels it's not just the singers and it's not just the orchestra yeah it's the whole production it's everything you've got to have that care factor because it it feeds everyone else mm-hmm. doesn't it and then it just becomes a organism that's alive and yeah yeah, and And exciting and the feeling when you've got a great show and then everybody's really loving it and when the people creating the costumes are loving the making the costume so much and people learning the score are loving the score there's quite a buzz and especially when you get the audience in as well on the first night and you think okay how's this going to go down (laughs) will they love it as much as we do so you mentioned earlier you have a passion for bringing new audiences in making music more accessible for a wider audience. So what's ENO doing to draw new audiences in? What kind of things can people look out for in order to attend the opera if they perhaps haven't done so before, but they're thinking maybe this is something I could get into? I think at ENO we've got such a push to get a new audience in, and that's something I feel really passionately about, even though I'm not in our marketing team and <laughs> I don't know how to do it properly myself. We've got a whole lot of new schemes, which are quite amazing. And one of them has been going for a few years now. It's called Opera Undressed. And this is one I keep pushing for my friends who haven't been to a show before. I think a ticket is only about £20. It's for certain performances, so it's only on certain dates. But people come in who've never been to an opera before. They get a pre-performance talk with the director. Sometimes it's with someone else from the organisation. I've done a few. So they get a bit of a debrief or a pre-brief, so to say, (laughs) about the show and what to expect. They then get a backstage tour oh, and then an cool. excellent ticket to see the show following that. So all that for only £20? For only £20. And I'm not sure if they still do, but they did used to be sponsored by Sipsmith, so they were, there was always a good gin function <laughs> afterwards, which definitely appealed to me. Well, but, sometimes a gin will cost you £20. <laughs> or in London, <laughs> yep. here we go. Yeah, Totally. Mm. That's amazing. And tell me more about outreach for younger audience members. Yeah, so we've got our free under-18 scheme, which yeah. I told you about earlier. But also we've got an amazing program called our Bayless Program. So that's our education team. So they go out into schools all over London. They run groups called Opera Squad and sort of get kids to create their own operas, yeah. sort of inspired by shows that we've done. So last year they did an amazing one. We opened our season with Porgy and Bess. And these kids came on stage, they worked for a few weeks and they created their own work inspired by Porgy and Bess. Oh. And then they performed it before one of their operas. I think they're going to do a couple more this season. Mm-hmm. So it's quite amazing to see how the next generation interpret a work yeah. that know, is known and exists and their perception of it and what they can bring to the table. Yeah, also how they themselves define opera. Exactly. Because I think there's that idea that opera is, as we mentioned before, like quite elitist and people hold this certain image in their head of what opera is. But Mm -hmm. for the new generation, knowing that opera is the creativity, it's the artistry, as you've mentioned, and being involved in that, it it changes the definition a little bit. It was like a friend of mine came, he'd never been to an opera before, and we sort of had a deal that I'd get him some very discounted tickets and he'd have to sit there and watch the show. 
I took him to a Magic Flute Simon McBurney had directed. It's brilliant. It's very contemporary, but very funny, but still very true to the... Did um, I go to that one? I think you might have. It's <laughs> the one that's got... It's got a live Foley artist. Yes, the Foley artist. And a live artist who sort of draws the yeah, backdrops on yeah, chalk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember that. projected up onto, the, up onto the stage. Yes. So it's a very brilliant production. Very, mm. very clever. So we caught up for a drink afterwards and debriefed, as you do in the pub. His first comment was, so I liked everything that wasn't the opera. I was like, well, what on earth do you mean? You just went to the opera. He's like, well, I liked the gags. I liked the, you know, the acting. I liked the drawing. I liked the Foley artist. I didn't like the singing. And I was like, but don't you realise that all those things <laughs> are part of the opera as well as the singing? Yeah. It's multi, multi-leveled. multi Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The opera is not just the singing. No. And I think people can see that and be like, what on earth is this? Exactly. Yeah. So, no, it's quite good. <laughs> it's always nice to get different people's perspectives yeah, for sure. on what the show is. So I've got a really serious question now. Oh, please. Can you tell me, what do you think are New Zealand's chances of retaining the Rugby World Cup? Oh, this is a very sensitive topic, Davina. <laughs> I have to bring this up with you because I feel like a lot of our time that we spend together as friends is sitting in pubs watching rugby matches. I mean, is there a better pastime? I think not. <laughs> I hope that our chances are very high. I have to be honest that I don't think I'm as... Um, Positive as I would have been for the previous two World Cups. Mm-hmm. For four years ago, we've lost Richie McCaw. Exactly. And I mean, DC. And DC. Jan Carter. What a shame on many levels. <laughs> what other levels may, <laughs> might you be talking about? I mean, his jockey underwear advertisements <laughs> on the side of buildings in New Zealand were a particular favourite of mine. Oh, don't worry, you've got that photo of me when I met him oh, in my local cafe in New Zealand. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> oh. New Zealand's a very small place. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we're proving the stereotype right now. Well, it's, well, it's kind of true, though. You do run into rugby players all the time in New Zealand. Mm. I ran into Richie McCaw once, actually. Oh, yeah. I think at the airport. Yeah. It was one of those occasions where I'd just I'd come back from Canberra, stopped off at the airport, my parents were there to pick me up, but actually Richie McCall was there first, so I had my photo taken with him. After years of asking my parents to put up photos of me on the wall, my brothers were up there constantly, not bitter, as the only daughter middle child. <laughs> but um, my dad said as soon as I'd had this photo with Richie McCall, he was like, great photo, that should go straight up on the wall. This is going straight to the pool room. Rugby World Cup, it'll be an interesting one this year. I think I'm still a little bit sore, so to speak, after the Cricket World Cup and our All right. brutal, brutal loss of the Cricket World Cup, having drawn twice in the final. See, I understand that was very sad, but I don't follow cricket. No, I'm not normally a but, follower, but I am a very proud New Zealander, so yeah, in, especially sure. if we're going to beat England. You know, we were redeemed the following week because the Silver Ferns won the Netball World Cup. Exactly. They might be soon the only team that I support in New Zealand sport, <laughs> depending on the outcome of the Rugby World Cup. Right. No, we no. are in the same pool as South Africa. Oh, I know. It's going to be interesting. Tricky. Yeah. Yeah. But well, no, the banter in the local pub here constantly when they hear I'm from New Zealand and how about those All Blacks. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's my sole um, fear for losing the Rugby World Cup would be having to survive the English <laughs> brutality. Yeah, having your head hang in shame. Exactly. But no, I've still got faith in the boys. Yep. Okay. They will come out strong. I'm looking forward to going to the pub with you. There's going to be the next few months. 8 a.m. starts. Oh, early. Yeah, so a bit of daytime boozing, I'm <laughs> anticipating. Never goes wrong. Right, right, yeah. I mean, it's not like September's a really busy month for me or anything. No, Jeez. indeed. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on now. As I mentioned to you before, there mm-hmm. are some surprise questions. Okay. So this is the wild card question round where... This is your chance to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I give you. 
So, first we have books. Great. All books. No. <laughs> I've just <All> written books. <laughs> I've just written books. There will be a question regarding books. Nice. Okay, next. Opera's greatest hits, according to Lucy. Great. And number three, listening habits. Oh, I'm going to go with books. Books. All books. All books. Great. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Right now, I'm actually reading a book that should appeal to you. It's called The Lido, or The Lido, and it's set at Brockwell Lido around the corner from your house. <laughs> so it's a lovely book that's sort of set in an area that I know quite well. There's one thing I like about um, London is reading novels and watching TV shows and movies and sort of spotting all the places that you know. Yeah. Have you ever played Monopoly since you've moved to London and then you realise that all the properties on the Monopoly board are actual places? Actual places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yeah. They had to get them from somewhere. I couldn't think of them themselves. No, mm. obviously. So is this book, is it uh, a novel? So it's a novel. It's actually quite a nice, light summer read. Okay. I was reading it on that 40 degree heat wave, hottest day on record day, because I oh, wanted right. to go to the Lido, but actually they were all overrun <laughs> in yeah. typical London style. So instead I sat on the balcony and I read a book about a Lido. About the Lido. Like, it's almost like I'm there. Well, it's probably a good thing that you weren't there because that made the news, actually. There was like, they had to call the police to handle the queues, of course, because there were queues in the UK. Yeah. But also there were queue cutters. So there were people pushing in and then I think there was a li- maybe a little bit of a brawl. I mean, mm. it's a wonderful place to be. I'm really lucky that I live super close to it but I've actually only been there once <laughs> I went there once and and it was a freakishly hot April day Ooh. and I very luckily got in in an hour between yummy mummies <laughs> with all their babies mm-hmm. so they had departed and the hour before all the school children arrived a good hour yeah exactly I so admit, I've actually only been there to go to their really really great cafe where oh, they do a good right. brunch with me I think I've done that with yeah, you yeah, yeah I definitely. think you have yeah mm. so I mean like the perks of being a musician just going to these yeah. places in the middle of the day thank you so much for being on the podcast tell me what shows are coming up for E&O that people can look out for so actually we're starting off our season it opens with an Orpheus series so we're doing four Orpheuses I think all quite in different formats we've also got a classic Jonathan Miller Mikado brilliant brilliant lovely light production beautiful staging and then a Carmen which is a very good Carmen in a modern formation mm-hmm. Madam Butterfly which I think you Again. came in with your, yeah. with your dad I no? did yeah you, you got me and my dad tickets and I cried at the end because the music is just so overwhelming. And then my, I was like, we're clapping, the final applause and everything. And I was like, uh, uh, uh. and then dad looked over at me and just said, did you, did you not know what happened at the end? I'm like, oh, that's not the point. No. Like, we all know what happens at the end, but it's just so tragic. Well, do you want to know my embarrassing story on that? Yeah. It's not Man Butterfly, but it's another Puccini, La Boheme. So I got some tickets about two years ago to go and see La Boheme at the Royal Opera House. And amazingly, for having performed in operas and now working in operas in a couple of different companies, I'd actually never seen a La Boheme. And, spoiler alert, I didn't know she died at the <laughs> end. <laughs> I was like, a, quite an old spoiler. I think the clue is that she's got big cold hands at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sort of one of those embarrassing things that, how do I work in opera in quite a major company? And I never knew that... <laughs> Mimi dies at the end of Love OM. What did you think she was just going to pull through at the end when she's lying there? I was optimistic. Oh, okay. Well, 
<laughs> Sadly, opera is not like the movies. No, no, it's, it's not. not. It's not always a happy end. In fact, it's more often than not. Yeah, quite tragic. not a happy end. Yeah. yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, and thank you for the pineapple lumps. No probs. On to a winner. Awesome. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Davina. <laughs> That was Lucy Anderson, and I hope you found our conversation interesting. It's been a pleasure having so much Kiwi to listen to during the production process of this episode. Don't tell me after listening to that that you can't tell the difference between a Kiwi and an Aussie accent, because I think we've made it crystal clear. Following last episode's story of the Obotastic Bride, this week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes from Dan Burrows with another wedding-related story. I was playing at a wedding. Nothing special when along came a pigeon, which flew over to a nearby table that was being prepared to serve drinks from. I watched as the pigeon inched its way closer and closer to an ice bucket. I looked on warily, as one would when observing a bird which was getting uncomfortably close to products destined for human consumption. The pigeon landed on the rim of the ice bucket. We made eye contact. The bird looked at me, cocked its head, and jumped into the ice bucket, making itself comfortable, while those of us playing in the quartet cracked up laughing at our one avian audience member who actually seemed to be listening to us. We told the lady running catering, who promptly shooed the bird away and whisked the bucket away for thorough cleaning, after which she said, I don't suppose you got a photo of the pigeon actually in the bucket, did you? I held up my phone proudly, showing a photo of the most amusing moment of the day, and we shared a giggle at the absurdity of it all. If you have a story or an anecdote for which Music College didn't prepare you for, tell me. Remember, due to the small nature of the music industry, I'm happy to anonymise you. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com via social media, letter, skywriting, carrier pigeon. Oh, Lucy's going to hate that. She hates birds. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Massive thanks to Lucy Anderson for being my guest and for ensuring that I do actually attend operas once in a while as an audience member by providing me with tickets. Thanks, Luce. And finally, thank you for listening. Get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. If you do, you'll get to see updates from me and my assistant producer, Romeo, Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Chat to you soon. Bye.